a reading from the books of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Um, I'm excited to be back preaching at Oak Church. Um, last time I preached here, we were still meeting in the parking lot. And uh, as the sun came up over the building, everyone just progressively moved further away from me to chase the shade. So I'm glad that you'll at least stay put today. Uh, it makes it a little easier to know where to focus while I'm speaking. Um, hey, at any point while I'm preaching, if you think to yourself, Man, this church is great. I love the fellowship. The, the music is awesome. But I just don't like sitting through sermons. Um, one, don't tell me, because that will hurt my feelings. Two, might I suggest volunteering for Oak Kids? You get out before the sermon, get to hang out with the kiddos, uh, still get the music and the fellowship. So uh, see Pastor Meg. If you want to do that. Uh, she didn't ask me to, to promo Oak Kids, but I always feel uh, obliged to do that when, <laughs> when I'm in front of people. Um, cool. So today we're talking about William Seymour. Um, and yeah, let's, let's dive in. So Pentecost is strange. People's heads on fire a fierce howling wind, the sudden ability to speak in new languages. No wonder some people looked on and said, surely these guys must be drunk. This particular Pentecost in Acts 2 is especially strange to us living in the 21st century because we're separated, by it, separated from it by 2,000 years of history and culture. So perhaps examining the happenings of a more recent Pentecost uh, 
by way of the life of William Seymour will help us understand some of this strangeness of Pentecost. For those of you that are new to Oak Church, uh, we have this ongoing series called Y'all Saints, in which we examine the lives of saints who've gone before us, and we glean lessons from their lives of faith. We're continuing that series today as we dive in to the life and work of William Seymour. William Seymour was born in 1870 to Simon and Phyllis Seymour, former enslaved people who became sharecroppers in southern Louisiana following the Civil War. William's parents were practicing Roman Catholics, and he was baptized as a child at the Church of the Assumption in Franklin, Louisiana. When William was just 21, his father passed away, and William took over his father's sharecropping responsibilities to provide for his mother and seven siblings. A few years later, however, fleeing the ever-heightening racism of the post-Reconstruction South, Seymour moved north to Indianapolis. While he was living in Indianapolis, Seymour attended the Simpson Chapel Methodist Episcopal Church. What's interesting about this church was that it was a racially inclusive, integrated church, unlike any church that Seymour had ever attended in the South, and probably unlike most churches at that time. This was like around 1900. Unfortunately, after attending Simpson Chapel for a few years, the church caved to societal pressures and split along racial and ethnic lines. After that split, Seymour joined a group in Indianapolis called the Evening Light Saints, which was kind of a non-denominational congregation, gathering of people that also had interracial commitments, and they practiced things like mixed seating and shared leadership. And it's through his involvement with these Evening Light Saints that Seymour was introduced to the holiness movement, which he would be a part of until his death. After briefly returning to Louisiana to work as a farmhand, Seymour moved to Cincinnati to attend God's Bible School and Training Home, which was a racially integrated ministry training school connected to the holiness movement. While he was studying in Cincinnati, Seymour contracted smallpox and went blind in his left eye. Um, And reflecting on this unfortunate event, he said he saw this as the result of being reluctant to answer God's call to the ministry. Um, It's a whole rabbit hole we can go down, but uh, in any case, he answered that call now and studied at God's Bible School for two years before he moved in Houston, moved to Houston in 1903 to join in with the ongoing holiness ministry happening there. While he was living and working in Houston, Seymour met a man named Charles Fox Parham. He was a holiness minister who emphasized the importance of baptism in the Holy Spirit and taught that this baptism was evidenced by speaking in tongues. In January of 1906, at the encouragement of his friend Lucy Farrow, Seymour joined Parham's Bible School. Now, partially due to some Jim Crow laws in Texas, but mostly due to the fact that Parham was incredibly racist, Seymour wasn't permitted to sit in class with the white students. Some revisionist histories of Parham's life try to paint Parham as a subversive anti-racist for letting Seymour participate in the Bible school at all, but we'll see a little later why that's maybe an extremely overly generous interpretation of Parham's life. 
Just one month after starting at Parham's Bible School, Seymour received an invitation to pastor at a small holiness mission in Los Angeles, California. Parham told Seymour that he shouldn't go. He said, you're not qualified, you haven't been baptized in the spirit, you don't speak in tongues, it's not your time, don't go. Seymour went anyways. And he began preaching the message of this baptism in the Holy Spirit that he learned from from Parham. At least he tried to, because he preached one sermon and the local Pentecostal Holiness Association uh, decided that they didn't really like what Seymour was preaching and they padlocked the doors of the church to prevent him from speaking further. Ironically, in the same meeting in which Seymour was fired for preaching about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the president of the Southern California Holiness Association said to him, when you receive it, please let me know because I'm interested in receiving it too. So here Seymour is, having moved across the country to pastor a church that he was now quite literally barred from. So what was he to do? Give up and go back home? Instead, he stayed in L.A., And he started a prayer meeting at a friend's house where he continued to preach his message of baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was a really small group, maybe about 15 people. They met in his friend Edward Lee's living room and um, just read scripture and prayed. And Seymour would teach these 14 other people about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A couple of months into the meeting, on April 9th, 1906, one of the members of the group began to speak in tongues after a time of prayer and fasting. Two more members of the group also spoke in tongues that night, and Seymour spoke in tongues three days later. News of this revival spread quickly. People began to flock to Los Angeles to witness and experience this baptism in the Holy Spirit. The group eventually had to move to this place called the Apostolic Faith Mission, which was on Azusa Street in downtown L.A. Uh, And they had to move because so many people gathered at Seymour's friend's house that the front porch collapsed while Seymour was preaching. So they quite literally uh, broke the stage and had to find a new one. Um, The revival continued to grow. People came from all around to experience this baptism and hear from prominent holiness preachers like Seymour and C.H. Mason, a guy named William Durham, no relation to uh, our Durham. Um, And on any given day, there would be about 1,500 people gathered in the Azusa Street Mission to sing and pray and witness what was going on uh, at Azusa Street. And the building wasn't that big. It was like as big as this building. Um, So if you can imagine 1,500 people in here, uh, pretty sweaty, (laughs) probably. Um, So yeah, so the people began to gather. People came from all around. And Seymour also started a newspaper called The Apostolic Faith that he used to help spread the news of what was happening at Azusa and continue to draw people in. a year after Seymour founded the paper, it had about 40,000 
members that it regularly circulated to. So it's a pretty widespread web of influence for this um, small church in LA. Uh, they were reaching people all around the country and all around the world. Uh, from the beginning, the Azusa Street Revival was notably egalitarian. Black folks, white folks, Latin folks, they all worshiped together at the same altar, and the leadership of the re revival was diverse along the lines of race, gender, age, and class. Ashan Crawley, who's a professor of relig religious studies and African-American and African studies at the University of Virginia, says of Azusa, quote, the Pentecostal movement that began in Los Angeles in 1906 was interreligious, interracial, interracial, and internationalist in its composition. Women and men preached and prayed together, white men glorifying in the fact that black women and men prayed for them, laid hands on them even, and they worshiped together. Children spoke in tongues, prophesied, and interpreted the meaning of such words with boldness, conviction, and clarity. So this revival continued from 1906 to about 1908, and it mostly dissipated by 1909 due to some internal conflicts and betrayals among the leadership of the revival. Uh, after Charles Parham, you might remember him from earlier, the, the woke Bible teacher who let Seymour uh, sit in the hall. Uh, he visited Azusa Street a few months into the revival, and he tried to take over leadership of the mission from Seymour, primarily because of his belief that a black man could not preach to white people. So after Seymour and the congregation at Azusa rejected Parham, Parham decided to permanently set up shop in LA and he opened his own church just a, a few blocks away from Azusa Street. Seymour had a similar experience with two other leaders from Azusa, uh, Florence Crawford and Claire Lum, who were both on the leadership team there. Um, one night, they stole the mailing list for the Apostolic Faith uh, newspaper and went to Portland, Oregon to start their own church um, called by the same name uh, as the one in L.A. And in what was the final blow to the unity of the revival at Azusa, Seymour's friend in ministry, William Durham, tried to take over leadership of the church while Seymour was on a preaching tour in another part of the country. In an effort to prevent Durham from preaching, Seymour's wife, Jenny, padlocked the doors of the church. In response, Durham started his own church down the road, and the congregation at Azusa was effectively split. There's some sort of poetic irony in the fact that this revival both begins and ends with padlocked doors. Even after the flames of revival died down and the Azusa Street Mission became a small local church, Seymour remained planted at Azusa Street, where he pastored until his death in 1922. I'd say that if you're ever in LA, you should visit the Azusa Street Mission, um, but it was torn down a long time ago and there's like a bank there now. So the building isn't there anymore, but Seymour's legacy lives on and learning about his life and ministry gives us an opportunity to reflect on Pentecost and what it means to live a life filled with the Spirit. So first, I think that in learning about Seymour's ministry, and in particular his ministry at Azusa Street, we begin to reveal a little bit about why people might think that Pentecost is strange. 
I think that Pentecost is strange to those on the outside looking in because in Pentecost, prevailing social orders are upended and power structures that were used to maintain oppression are overturned. Newspapers at the time of the revival published such headlines as, quote, all night meetings in Azusa Street Church, black and white give themselves over to strange outbursts of zeal. Here's another one, whites and blacks mix in a religious frenzy. Or another, disgusting scenes at Azusa Street Church as crazed girls in arms of black men. Charles Parham, here he is again, was invited to speak at the revival and after seeing how white folks and black folks worship together at the same altar, he went up to the pulpit and he declared that God was disgusted with what was going on. Reporting on his experience at Azusa, Parham angrily states, I've seen meetings where all crowded together around the altar, laying across one another like hogs, blacks and whites mingling. This should be enough to bring a blush of shame to devils, let alone angels. And yet all this was charged to the Holy Spirit. All our public services should be for the edification of the church, not to get worked up into animalism, creating magnetic currents tending to lust and free love rather than purity. If that wasn't bad enough, Parham later wrote of the revival, men and women, blacks and whites, knelt together or fell across one another frequently. A white woman, perhaps of wealth and culture, could be seen thrown back in the arms of a big black man and held tightly thus as she shivered and shook in freak imitation of Pentecost. Horrible, awful shame. Funny enough, horrible, awful shame is usually what I say after I read anything that Parham has written. Um, also, I edited those to be appropriate to read in public. They are much worse in reality. But Parham and others weren't really concerned with the religious zeal and fanaticism that sprung from the Azusa Street Revival. Sure, maybe these practices weren't a normal part of religious services, but what was really scary to Parham and others who benefited from racial segregation and gender depression was that at the altar of Azusa, none of those barriers seemed to matter. In Acts 2, the onlookers at Pentecost didn't think that the disciples and others were drunk because they were out preaching in the streets. They thought they were drunk because they said that they were hearing the good news of the wondrous works of God in their own language, the language of home, not in Greek, the language of the empire that served as a constant reminder of who was in charge and who was not. At Azusa, onlookers weren't really concerned about the dancing or the zealous singing and prayer, but the fact that men and women of all races, ages, and classes danced, sang, and prayed together freely. They were concerned because their old ways of being were overturned. Next, I think we can gain some valuable insights about what it means to faithfully live a life filled with the Spirit by comparing Parham's and Seymour's views on spirit baptism. For Parham, to be baptized in the Spirit was to be selected as a part of some inner circle of 
Christianity, the quote, called out from the called out. Super saved, you might say. For Parham to be filled with the Spirit was a confirmation of one's chosen status, one's place on the top of some imagined hierarchy of salvation. Even speaking in tongues for Parham functioned as a means of reaffirming and solidifying social hierarchy. The chosen spirit-filled person, who in Parham's view could only be a white male of Western European descent, was given the gift of speaking, quote, the language of the heathen, not even to preach the good news of God's love and salvation, but in order to rule over heathen nations when Christ returned. Parham's supremacist views of being filled with the Spirit stand in stark contrast to those of William Seymour, for whom egalitarianism and mutuality were just as much a sign of being filled with the Spirit as speaking in tongues. Seymour takes his cues on spirit baptism from Acts 2, in which the disciples of Jesus, freshly filled with the Spirit, leave the upper room, go out into the street, and preach a sermon that's able to gather diverse people from all around the ancient world. For Seymour, any experience of the Spirit that did not lead to more holiness, more peace, more feelings of love, joy, compassion, devotion, or giftedness was inauthentic. Seymour succinctly summarizes his own views of being filled with the Spirit as follows. Quote, the Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it is simply a counterfeit. Parham's view of the spirit-filled life involved solidifying one's place atop the mountain, constantly building up protections against being replaced by those who were seen as less than. In Seymour's view of the spirit-filled life, we are filled with the spirit to be sent into the world on level ground because by the power of the spirit, every mountain is made low and every valley raised up. For Parham, the work of the spirit was limiting, affirming old ways of being and enforcing old structures of power. For Seymour, the work of the spirit shattered those structures of power created new opportunities for love, joy, and compassion. Parham's vision of the spirit-filled life is one that never leaves the upper room. Seymour's vision of the spirit-filled life is one in which we are compelled by the overflowing love of God to head out into the street. As I tried to think about how to wrap up this sermon, I thought about some other sermons that I'd heard about the life of William Seymour uh, that often make appeals to his life and his testimony. I thought about how in those sermons, Seymour's life was often used as inspiration to encourage those listening to become revival leaders in their own right. More than once, I've sat in church or a chapel service at college and listened to a fired Pentecostal preacher, fired up Pentecostal preacher, say something like, if God can use the one-eyed son of a slave to bring revival to this world, God can use you. 
some piano usually playing in the background, really effective. So statements like this might be effective in making some emotional appeal or a call for action. But in reality, I think that they dishonor the legacy of Seymour and they kind of miss the point of his life. I don't think that God used William Seymour in spite of his lowly position in society or all the adversity he had to overcome. Instead, I think it's precisely because of those things that Seymour found himself on the fringes, among the poor, the outcast, the excluded. Precisely because of those things, Seymour found himself among the people who were primed and ready for Pentecost. You see, friends, Seymour's life reminds us that Pentecost doesn't happen in the centers of power, but on the fringes. Pentecost doesn't happen in the temple, but in an upper room on the outskirts of town to a group of people who are scared and lost and don't know what to do next. Pentecost doesn't happen in the front of the class, but just outside the door, sitting on the floor in the hallway. Pentecost doesn't happen in the padlocked church, but in a small prayer meeting on a dusty living room floor in Los Angeles. My hope for us as we approach Pentecost Sunday in a couple weeks is that we would go about our normal lives with eyes, ears, and hearts open, looking around us for places that are ready for Pentecost. Places that are disordered and crying out to be reordered in the spirit. Places that are filled with hurt and pain. Places that need more of the love of God. Because it's precisely in those places that Pentecost happens. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for the life of this saint. William Seymour. We thank you that he saw in your spirit, in your love, a new reality that was welcoming to all, that made space for those who previously had no space. He saw in your spirit an expanding presence that brought more love, more compassion, more joy. Grant us this same vision, Lord, that we would see with new and open eyes your spirit at work in the world around us. Amen.